Is that on? Okay. Uh, brothers and sisters, can I get you to turn with me to John chapter 1? John chapter 1. That's on page 1069. In, uh, you got two handouts as you came in. On one of them, there is an outline of where we're going in the sermon. Uh, it'd be helpful to have that open in front of you as well. If you want a pencil, you can get it from the welcome desk. Um, it'd also be helpful to put in your church. If you're using the church Bibles, there's a little east yellow, yellow bookmark. Keep that in John 1 because we're going to flick around a few places. We'll always come back to John 1, so it'd be useful to have that. Uh, in there as well. Right, let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, as we uh, come to your word again now, we pray that your spirit will continue to speak to us. We pray that as we uh, consider uh, what your spirit has uh, written through the Apostle John, uh, he will also be causing us to see Jesus more clearly, um, to believe on him, uh, to have eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As David mentioned just now, today we're beginning a new series in John's Gospel. Uh, so over the next nine weeks, we're going to be looking at the first uh, four chapters of the Gospels, of this Gospel. Uh, and then uh, later on in the year, we're going to be looking at uh, uh, chapters 5 to 11. Uh, and then this time next year, uh, we'll be looking at chapter 12 uh, to the end. Uh, so we should finish John's Gospel at the, uh, by Easter uh, next year. Uh, today we're looking particularly at the first 18 verses uh, of John. Uh, uh, but before we do so, let me just give you a brief introduction to the book as a whole. Uh, this Gospel was written by the Apostle John. He's one of the 12 Apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you can divide John's Gospel into two parts. Uh, chapters 1 to 11 is traditionally called the Book of Signs. And chapters 12 to 21, the book of glory. Uh, because in chapters 1 to 11, John records seven signs that Jesus performed which show uh, who he is. Uh, he also records lots of dialogue and debate and teaching that came as a result of those signs. And then in chapters 12 to 21, they are the lead up to Jesus' death and resurrection, where we see his glory revealed. So it's called the book of glory. Right? And the climax of that. In fact, the climax of the whole book is in chapter 20, verse 28. So come with me to chapter 20, verse 28. Uh, leaving your bookmarks in chapter 1. You see where we're going by the end of the book. That's in chapter 20. It's on page 1093. Uh, this is after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, and remember, uh, Jesus has appeared to his uh, disciples. Uh, and uh, they've seen him, they've spoken with him. Uh, but Thomas wasn't with them. Uh, and when they tell Thomas about it, uh, Thomas doesn't believe their testimony. Uh, he says, you know, unless I put my, my fingers in his wounds, uh, unless I see for myself, I'm not going to believe. Uh, and so the next, day, the next week, Jesus appears uh, to them again, and this time Thomas is with them. And, Thomas, and he says, look, put your finger here, see my hand, see my hand, put your hand on my side, and don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says in verse 20, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You see, Thomas has come to recognize Jesus as his Lord and his God. Uh, 
crowd. That's the, that's the punchline, if you like, of this book. And then straight away Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are those who have not seen. See, Thomas should have listened to the testimony of the apostles and believed. And then, John says, verse 20, 30 rather, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is why, that is why John wrote this book. He wants us to have the apostolic testimony, the testimony of the eyewitness, just like Thomas had, to the signs, the resurrection, see who Jesus is, see what he's teaching, all those things, so that we might be the people who, even though we don't see, we believe. And by believing, we have eternal life. Because of Christ. So that is his goal. Uh, he tells us actually, uh, in verse 30, that Jesus did many other signs. Right? So he didn't tell us all the signs. Uh, in fact, he says he can't. If you go, if you go, to, if you go to the last chapter, last, last, last verse in the whole book, he says, "Now there are many other things that Jesus did, where every one of them to be written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that are written. Uh, yeah, where it would be written. So he can't. He can't say everything. But what he's done is he's chosen these things in order to help us understand uh, who Jesus is, uh, to make his point. He gives us his factual account of what happened, so we can see Jesus." We can believe in Him, and we can have eternal life. Now, the Apostle John does it in a different way from the other evangelists, the other gospel writers. Matthew, you remember, he starts with the genealogy of Christ, tracing him back to to, uh, David and Abraham, uh, and then gives a story of his conception, and his birth, and his ministry, and then his death and resurrection. Mark goes straight into Jesus' ministry. Luke tells the story of the conception all the kind of things before that uh, from Mary's point of view but the Apostle John where does he start? he starts in eternity past doesn't he? starts right at the beginning not talking about his his birth or straight to his ministry he goes right 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 back into Jesus' pre-existence the other gospels help you see slowly that Jesus is God see by what he says, by what he does. But here in John's Gospel, he tells you right up front, you know from the very beginning, who you're dealing with. Dealing with God. And so in these first 18 chapters of the Gospel, we have what is known as the prologue of John. A prologue is the, the first part of a literary work that forms an introduction to the rest. It's not quite the same as the rest of the work. It, 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 uh, it's there to help you prepare you to read it. Right? It's a bit like some of the trailers you see you know, at the front of a, a TV show. Right? Trailers, you might give some highlights of the show, introduce the main characters, uh, provide some information for non-regular viewers, heighten expectations of what's to come, you know, make you want to watch the show. Right? Uh, and that's what, what, what the prologue is doing here. Now, many themes that are introduced in the prologue are going to be coming up again and again in the gospel. We meet some of the main characters here, uh, giving the most important background to, to that most important one, uh, and we're giving hints of where the story is going to go as it pans out. Now, 
the prologue starts, in fact, the whole gospel starts with the phrase, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. In the beginning. Now, what does that remind you of? Yes, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, isn't it? What does Genesis 1 1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? In the beginning, God, and then it talks about creation. Now, John picks up that in the beginning, and then he's got a whole lot of stuff in verse, rest of chapter, verse 1 and verse 2, and then in verse 3, he talks about creation. All things were made through him, nothing was made without him. See that? So what he's done is he's taken the structure from John 1.1 1, 1 to start his thing off. He's saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what he's doing is he's like opening up this, this God from John 1. Uh, giving you extra information on that point. Right? It's like, I don't know, something, sometimes online you get this little, when, when you're on the screen, right? you get this little plus sign uh, on, on something. And then you click on that plus sign and a whole lot of things come down underneath. You, you know what I mean? On the computer? Okay. It's like he's, he, he's using the structure of John 1 and click the plus sign and thrrr, you get all this stuff uh, in the rest of verse 1 uh, and, and, and in verse 2. Okay. Um, and so he's, he, he's uh, opening up, expanding uh, what the Old Testament just has as, as God. He's not telling us all about God. Right? There's much more that he could say that he's, that he's not saying here. And in fact, the Spirit who inspired this doesn't tell us even about his own role in the Trinity. Because the, the point of this is not to tell us about the Trinity or anything else. It helps us to, to go back and see where Jesus comes from. Right? And so, you double-click this, and you find that within this God, there is this, there's this word. Now, John chapter 1, verse 1, read it together. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the Word was God. Right? So the Word or in Greek the Logos is on the one hand with God and on the other hand He is God. How does that work? The fact that He is with God means that He is, he, he is distinguishable from God. Uh, he can enjoy, he, he, in fact, he does enjoy relationship with God. And on the other hand, the Word is God. Right? Actually God. Now, now that's difficult. How, how can it be both? Well, we only actually come to grasp that when we, when we understand the whole Bible's revelation of God. It will finally make sense. That is, from all eternity, the Son is with the Father. The Father is God, and the Son is equally God. Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, but the Son is God and with the Father, so He is with God. Does that make sense? Right? The Word is God with God. If you look at this more, you have two full days, morning to night, to think about it in September when we uh, look at the doctrine of the Trinity uh, in our Spanish seminars. Right? But He's God with God. So when we get to verse 2, uh, already verse 1 we've got some surprising things. Huh? When we get to verse 2, we find something else surprising. At least it would be surprising for the Greek reader. It says, He was in the beginning with God. 
Now it's not surprising that he was in the beginning with God because at, we were told that already. Verse 1, why is he repeating this? But what is surprising about verse 2 is the pronoun. He was in the beginning with God. You see, the concept of the word or the logos uh, in the Greek thought was, was actually it was very widespread. But the Greeks thought of the Logos as the impersonal, rational principle governing the universe. Uh, some of them thought of the Logos as the soul of the universe. The Stoics in particular uh, thought this principle pervaded the entire universe, identified it as God. But it's an impersonal principle. This is not Greek thought here. John is using a Greek word, but very, very quickly redefining it in a Christian way. Yes, the Logos is God, but the Logos is with God. And He, not it, was with God from the beginning. And so in verse 2, back at the beginning, when Genesis 1 tells us that God created everything that exists, it was God and the Logos on the creation side of the equation. Does that make sense? In fact, verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The fact that you exist, the fact that I exist, the fact that this place, anything exists at all, is because of the Word, the Logos. Apart from the Logos, there is no existence. It is God who gives existence. It is God who gives life. But the Word is God. And the divinity of the Logos is also seen in verse 4. In Him was life. Every time uh, John uses the word life outside the prologue, he's talking about eternal life. There's no reason why he shouldn't be doing so here. The Word is the one in whom eternal life was to be found. The Word has eternal life in Himself. Uh, in John chapter 5, verse 26. Come with me to John 5.26, page 1076. Right, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The Son has life in himself. In the context of verse 24-25, he's talking about eternal life and the resurrection. See, the reason Jesus can offer eternal life to others is because first and foremost in him is life. And back to our passage, the life that comes from the Logos, verse 4, was the light of men. It's a light of men. Now, light and darkness is one of the motifs that comes up again and again in John's Gospel. Right? Darkness is a symbol for evil and ignorance in John. Light speaks of God's revelation. Right, and so, if you go to chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus is going to declare, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in John 3, come with me on this one, John 3, verse 19 and 20, just one flip of the page, uh, John 3, 19 to 20, and this is judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You see, the light that Jesus brings, what does he do? He reveals God. And he exposes people. Shows us up as sinners. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
And so in spite of the opposition, and so people don't, don't come to the light because we're sinful, we don't want him. We want him. And yet in spite of all this, the light from Logos shines, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness has not overcome it. The light will continue to shine. Like the Logos, and you know, you see that. When Jesus comes, darkness tries to overcome Jesus is put to death, but he is raised again. At this point, John's thought is turned to another man who is also confusingly called John. Now, in Malaysia, some, peop- some people call everyone who is Western-looking John. Right? Have, have, have you come across that? Oh, I used to come across that when I was a kid. All right? uh, um, I uh, remember being called John by people in school, right? particularly ignorant schoolmates, because uh, I look like a Matsale, and Matsales are called John. So, hey, John! Hey, John! Hey, John! Yeah? Um, but here we've got here we've got two Jews called John, right? John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel, and the other John who we meet in verse six, uh, uh, who we, we to to avoid confusion, we call him John the Baptist. Right? Uh, he will discover later on that he is the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one whom the Old Testament predicted would prepare the way for God to come to His people. And so, in John chapter one verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Right? So John was someone who was going to testify about the light. He was going to bear witness. He was going to take the stand and say, yes, this is the light. And his testimony won't just be confined. The people around him all, all, all might believe through him. His testimony is, is relevant to us now as well as it comes through the, as it comes through the scriptures. But John the Apostle is at pains to stress that John the Baptist is not the light himself. Right? Verse 8, right? verse 7, he's already told him that he came to bear witness to the light. Verse 8, he says, he is not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. Second time he says it. And if you go on, later on he's going to say it again. Why is he keep on saying this? Well, it may be that there were some people around who were disciples of John the Baptist who who wanted to make claims to him about that of Christ. Uh, now, John the Baptist himself, of course, would never do that. Uh, but he had died a long time before. Uh, he died before Jesus' death and resurrection, and his gospel was written significantly time after. And so, John's been a famous preacher, well thought of by the people. Uh, so it's quite possible that some people might have started a John the Baptist cult. Um, of course, John would, you know, if he, he, would, he would turn in his grave if he knew that. Um, but if that's the case, then, and we know it's speculative, but if that's the case, then that would explain why John the Apostle is so much stressing here that John the Baptist is not the light. His job is to point to the light. And we shall see next week how he bore witness to the light in his own time. Well, John points to the light, which, verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. The true light, from the Logos, come into the world that he created. Now at this point John doesn't tell us yet in what form he's going to come. You notice that? He just says he's going to come into the world. He'll tell us in a minute uh, but he wants to talk about the reception first. But before he comes to the reception he describes it at verse 9 again as the true light which enlightens everyone. Now what does it mean that he enlightens everyone? 
He's not talking about enlightenment in the, in the Buddhist kind of sense. Okay, you become the Buddha, you, you get enlightened. Right? Um, in fact, the word translated enlightened there means shed light upon. Right? It's like it's like if you've got something here and it's all dark, and I turn the light on, four, you can see this thing here. Does that make sense? You're shedding light upon it. You're enlightening it. You're putting light on it. You're making it visible. You're exposing it. And once again, the light of Jesus exposes everyone, shines on everyone, exposes everyone for, for how they respond to Him, shows what is on their hearts. And the evildoers who hate the light, who hate God, whether consciously or unconsciously, will flee the light or oppose it. They want to be shown up for who they are. Like cockroaches, when you turn the light on, they go. The response is typical of, 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 of fallen human beings. Verse 10, he was in the world. Here's the reception of the light. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world rejected him. And the representatives of the world who rejected him, they were his own people. Israel, whom he had rescued, whom he had sustained, who he had spoken to through the prophets for so many times, he didn't recognize him. He came to his own, verse 11. But his own people do not receive him. He was a rejected light. But even in the midst of minority, uh, majority rejection, there would be minority acceptance. There would be those who, in verse 12, who did receive him, who believed in his name. So receiving him means believing in his name. And those who believed in his name, they were given the right to become children of God. The right to become children of God. Isn't that amazing? Right? The Logos, we shall see, is come along, is the only unique Son of God. Uh, but those who believe in Him become children of God. Okay? John uses, uh, in John's Gospel, he differentiates between the uniqueness of the Son of God, according to the Son, and then the rest of us who are brought in, uh, are, are called are called children of God. Now, Paul does the same thing. Paul differentiates as well, but in a different kind of way. Okay? Um, but here, um, now we have been called reborn into God's family. Uh, he's the one who makes it possible. We know now, of course, it's by his death and resurrection, but John doesn't tell us that yet. So it's still in suspense as to, as to how it happens. But he does tell us that God is the one behind the, the new birth into the family. The children of God, verse 13, are those who are born not of blood nor of the will of flesh nor of the will of man but of God these are supernatural children these are people who are born again are born from above in the, in the true sense of the word and these are the people who have been given new spiritual life by the spirit of God made part of his family if you go to chapter 3 chapter 3 verse 5 uh, Jesus is going to say to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. We need a new birth. And a new birth doesn't come from a physical birth. It's not something from the human will. It's an act of God. It's an act of God's Spirit. It's for those who receive Jesus, who believe in the light. So, so far we've been introduced to the word, the Logos. We've seen that he's eternally with God and God. He's the agent of creation. 
the source of eternal life, the light of the world, the one who gives new birth to the people of God. And we've seen that he came into the world with a mixed reception. Remember, John hasn't told us yet what form he comes in. But now he's going to do that. That's one of the most amazing things in the Bible. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Logos, who is God, became human. Became one of us. He didn't just take on a body. He didn't just appear to be human. He didn't just look human. The Word became flesh. Truly God became truly man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the word dwelt there means pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, uh, Israel, after God rescued Israel from uh, slavery in Egypt, it's about 1,500 years before Christ, God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He was bringing them to the promised land. But first he took them to Mount Sinai, uh, where, he, where he gave them the law. And one of the many things that he did, uh, one of the many instructions that he gave through Moses, uh, was to make a tabernacle, which is a mobile temple, right, so he could dwell among them. Come, uh, leave your bookmark in John 1. Come with me to Gen- uh, Exodus 25. Exodus 25 on page uh, 78 when we finish there keep one little finger in Exodus because the next time we're going to come back we're going to go to Exodus as well as well right? but Exodus 25 and God's telling Moses and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle with all its furniture, so you shall make it. God wants to dwell in their midst. God wants to live with them. God wants to build the tabernacle. And in John 1.14, the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled, he pitched his tent, he tabernacled among us. He became flesh. God dwelt in our midst. And so the word who became flesh is thereafter known as Jesus Christ the one who is the Logos who is God with God from all eternity to become human and Jesus is the true tabernacle now, in Jesus God came and pitched his tent in our midst now, he's the true tabernacle which means he's the true temple uh, that is why he could later say in John chapter 2 verse 19 uh, John chapter 2 verse 19 he can say destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up and it says he was talking about the temple of his body but he is the real temple which is why we don't need tabernacles and temples anymore the tabernacle, the temple they are pointing forward to the time when God would truly dwell with humans and that has happened in Jesus we meet God in Jesus Jesus is truly God with us and because he is truly God with us, then he can show us how great God truly is. Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Now, in the Old Testament reading we had tonight from Exodus 33, now I'll go back to Exodus. Exodus 33, chapter 33, we're on page 88. Remember that? Moses is talking to God, and Moses asked to see God's glory. Right, chapter 33, verse 18. Moses says, please show me your glory. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Moses wants to see God's glory. God's glory is shown in his character. God proclaims that to Moses, but Moses cannot see his face. He cannot view God's glory in its fullness and expect to survive. But in the Word made flesh, in Jesus Christ, we have the perfect revelation of God's glory. John says, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't that amazing? We have seen the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We have seen the character of God in the grace and truth that so dominate the character of Christ. We have seen the work of God in the signs that Jesus did. We have seen the glory of God paradoxically and yet ultimately in His death and His resurrection. Jesus has revealed God to us. We have seen the face of God in Jesus. Now that is literally true for the Apostle John who wrote this. He, he lived, he drank, he traveled, he ate, he thought, he rested with Jesus. He knew Jesus intimately. What an amazing thing. How unthinkable to see the glory of God like that. And for us, we haven't seen it literally for ourselves, but we receive it through the testimony of John and the other apostles. We are those who have not literally seen and yet believed. And through the written word of God, through the Christ-appointed apostolic testimony, we too have seen the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And then at this point, John goes back to talking about John the Baptist. And once again he reminds us that John the Baptist himself said that Jesus was greater than he. Uh, verse 15, back in John 1, verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, think about it. We know from the other Gospels that chronologically, Jesus came after John, didn't he? But John says he was before him. Jesus himself will say in chapter 8 that he was before Abraham. 
Jesus is before John. He's before Abraham. He's before anyone. Why? Because he is the Word, the Logos, from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. That's why in the beginning he was God, with God. Now, whether John understands everything that he's saying, we don't know. If I had to guess, I think probably not. But he's speaking prophetically by the Spirit. They're announcing the divinity of Christ. Once again, we note that Jesus is greater than John. Well, remember just now we're in verse 14 and the Holy Spirit through the Apostle uh, tells us the glory of God. We have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 16 picks up that full word and from His fullness it says, We have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Or a better way of translating this is grace instead of grace. What does that mean? Grace upon grace. Grace instead of grace. Well, good thing John explains in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. The law, you see the law, the law in the Old Testament was actually gracious. What is grace? Grace is God treating us like we don't deserve, isn't it? It was, it was a gracious revelation of God. It's a, we don't deserve to go, know God at all. But God was kind to us. He revealed himself in the law. And the law, sh- law showed God's character. It showed how he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. It showed them how to respond to him, how to live his way. It's, it's, it's a gracious thing. There's grace in the law. Now, of course, there's also condemnation in the law. Because we are sinful and we can't keep the law. But that's not the point John is making here. And the law that is given through Moses is gracious. And when the law has been fulfilled by Christ, so that it no longer applies directly to us, and we are under Christ, and we are under the law of the Spirit, we are under the law of Christ, that is, that is grace instead of grace. We have swapped the grace of the law for the grace that comes through Jesus. The bigger grace. And the grace and truth that come through Jesus, that is even better and the grace that came through the law. The revelation that comes through the Word made flesh is far superior to the revelation that foreshadowed it. Remember, Moses wanted to see God. God would not show him his face. God's revelation to Moses was gracious, was true, but, but it was limited. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, even Moses, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The Word, the Logos, the Son, who is at the Father's side for all eternity, the one who is with God and is God, He has made Him known. No one can know God exhaustively. Right. Even if you go to heaven or so, you will know God exhaustively, right? You can't know God completely. You can know God truly. You can have a true knowledge of God. You can have a true relationship with God, but not exhaustive. If you could know everything about God, then you'd be God. It takes God to know God. And the God who knows God is the Word made flesh. Jesus Christ, 
who has revealed God to us. God has spoken to us through his son. And the God who knows God, the God who is with God, knows God completely. There's nothing here. And if we come to God through his son Jesus, then we have received the revelation from God. We couldn't find a better revelator. Impossible to find a better revelator. And the God who is with God for all eternity. Possible to find a better revelation of God than the Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, like I said last week, what? Can't think that you know, some other prophets will come and this prophet will come and say more things about God and new things will be revealed. No, no, hell on. If you've got Jesus and you've got everything there is to know about God, Complete revelation of God is there for you in Jesus Christ. Now, as we've worked through the prologue of John's Gospel, you might have thought that it lacks a bit of structure. Right? John speaks about the Word being with God and revealing God. And then he jumps to John the Baptist. He talks about light coming into the world, but he doesn't say how. He talks about the reception that the light receives. And then he only tells us about the word, how, the how, the word became flesh. And then he's nicely talking about, you know, how he reveals God and, 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 and uh, the fullness of grace and all that. And he jumps back to John the Baptist again. What's going on here? Well, you think he's all over the place because you're a 21st century thinker. Right? What you like is introduction, three bullet points. And a conclusion. Is that right? You wish all sermons were like that. Right? That's how you like to think. Uh, but in the ancient world, they like to think in other terms. Uh, one of those terms is called chiasms. Right? C-H-I-A-S-M. C-H-I-A-S-M. Chiasm. A chiasm is a literary structure uh, that's used in the ancient literature, both Jewish and Greek. Uh, it's not just in the Bible, it's in all, in all the classics there as well. Right? It's a well, so it's well-used device. And in a chiasm, you've got concepts or ideas are placed in a special symmetrical pattern uh, to emphasize them. So, for example, it's the first topic might be A, right? and then the second topic is B, third topic is C. And then you say something that's on the topic of B, and then you go back to the topic of A. So you've gone one round. Does that make sense? Talk about this, talk about A, talk about B. You can give me as many as you like. like A, B, C, D, E, and then back D, C, B, A. Alright, you go one round. Um, John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 is itself a little chiasm. Right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see that? Right. Oh, you know why he's talking about why he repeats himself a little bit in the beginning he's in the beginning oh, makes a nice chiasm doesn't it beginning word beginning with God word was with God word was God right. um, the advantage of what's the chiasm useful for well chiasm is useful to check our interpretation of a section by comparing it with the corresponding one so if you know that if you know there's A B C D E and, and, and backwards so if you, if you know 
you've, you've worked out that this A corresponds to this, this A dash here, this B corresponds to this B here, this C corresponds to this C here, and then you're not quite sure what this means, then you can look on over here and see, you see, 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 see what I mean? Right. That helps you with your interpretation. And often the very center of the chiasm uh, is something the writer is trying to stress, or trying to say, ah, think about this. Right. So it leads you out to the pointy bit, and then come back again. Uh, so you've got to look carefully at that pointy bit. Right. Now, I think I've got a chiasm in the prologue of John. I'll see if you agree. You may not be able to see that. Can you see that? Cannot see, yeah? Is that Tullius in front? No one? Okay. Uh, okay, let's go to the next slide then. It's not so good because it doesn't have the verses in there. You have to look at the verses in the Bible, but at least you can see the words. All right. um, so in verses 1 to 5, we can say is God revealing God. God revealing God. Right? Verse 1 to 4 shows us the Word was, with, was God with God. Uh, he's really God because He's involved with creation. He's really God because He has done a life in Himself. He reveals God for He's a light shining in the darkness. Darkness is not overcoming. He is God revealing God. And then you see the same point being made in verses 16 to 18. Uh, Jesus Christ in verse 18 is God with God. He reveals God. He makes Him known. And so in verse 16 and 17 we got get God's gracious and truthful revelation of Himself in Him. Then back in verse 6 to 8 we read the testimony of John the Baptist who, who testifies concerning Christ, identifying Him as the one whom the prologue is talking about. And in verse 15, well you got the testimony of John the Baptist again. In fact verse 14 would fit nicely with verse 16 to go together, but John the Apostle purposely mentions John the Baptist, I think, in order to keep the chiasm. And then we see the light was coming into the world in verse 10. What form he takes is not explained, but it's explained in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how he came to the world. Which brings us to the center point of the chiasm, the main thing we will consider. And it's about the reception of the Word made flesh. It's the reception of the light. And there are two kinds of ways people responded to the revelation of God by God. The world in general, remember, didn't know him. Israel, God's Old Testament people, they didn't want him. They arranged for him to be crucified. For those who believe, the Son makes us children of God. And so, friends, this evening we've seen something about how great Jesus is. We've seen that he is God, revealing God. He is the Logos, the Word that is with God from the beginning. He is God made flesh. He is God made visible, accessible to human beings. He is the one we need to go to if we want to see what God is like. He is the one who reveals the Father perfectly. What will your response be to the light that shines from the world? How will you respond to Jesus, the God who reveals God? Will you reject him? Oppose him? Run away from the light? Put up with the defenses? Or will you receive him? Believe in his name? And become one of God's supernatural children? Let's pray again.